Good morning. The Lord be with you, which means he's with us. And so let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy and for your goodness. Thank you that you're present here today. Mess with us. Transform us. Recalibrate us. And help us be careful to give you thanks for it. Through Christ our Lord, everybody said, amen. amen. Okay. So what the heck is this? Right? It's a minister's collar. I'm sure some of you feel awkward just looking at me in it. Imagine if you were wearing it. If you know me very well at all, you know that I don't do stick out. My general uniform for life is black t-shirt, blue jeans. Black t-shirt, gray jeans. Black t-shirt, black jeans. When I feel wild and uh, sort of crazy, I do gray t-shirt, black jeans. It's the truth. This is not just me, which is precisely the point. Somehow these kinds of things swallow up identity. Um, Historically, the collar symbolizes the slavery that we have to Christ and also to the church as a minister. The, uh, Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ and I am your servant. In England, the collar signifies that the minister is the parson. And what parson really means is just the same word as person. But the signification is that that the parson, he or she, is representing two things. One, Christ, to the church, but two, the church, to others. So when the parson comes in to pray for you in the hospital, it's not just him or her praying for you. It's the whole church praying for you. Um, so I stand here this morning, not as Ed Gunger alone. I'm standing here as your person. As cool as that is, I'm not planning on wearing it all the time. I like being my own parson, too. <laughs> and, and Gail's love slave. <laughs> Naughty. She doesn't really like this. Actually, she's told me repeatedly, I don't want to kiss a priest. <laughs> so I'm not planning on sporting it all the time, just so you know. And I get that wearing a collar means that some of you may feel like I've misled you somewhat. I mean, as we've been on this journey for 12 years, I've always said, I'm not sure what's going to change. Not much is going to change. As we've entered the CEC that happens May 1st, I've told you nothing's going to change. If it's any consolation, I really believe that when I said it. But here we are. <laughs> you say, well, will anything else change around here? Of course not. <clears throat> Honestly, thanks for being bold enough to question things that happen around here, uh, but loving enough to not judge us or take offense. And uh, one thing that has not changed all the way through our journey over these many years is that we are committed to following God, no matter who that separates us from or associates us with, that we are doing our best to say, God, what do you want from us and how can we articulate our lives so that we can help form people to be fully devoted followers in the 21st century. So everything that we do is through that filter, uh, as uncomfortable as it may be even for us. Our reading from the gospel this morning, it, it points to the idea of love 
And in the first reading in, during the singing, it points to the idea of a new world. They are beautifully put together uh, for us this morning in the context of having a commitment to love the world. So Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then in verse 33, he says, my children, I will only be with you a little longer, but you will look for me, and as I told the Jews, you'll, and I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's referring to he's going to go in through death and to resurrection and ascension. And then he says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. The bar's pretty high. The love Jesus has for us, we're to reflect to each other. And then he makes this astounding statement. By this, this loving, this way that you see people and relate to people, by this, all people will know that you belong to me, that we're connected, that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the message is pretty clear that, that the gospel only makes sense to the world at large in the way we love each other and love people. Um, somehow, love is about how we see each other and how we see each other speak something, how we treat each other, how we forgive each other when we're offended by each other. Something in that very action and that very commitment to forgive speaks to the world and touches our lives. And the, the fact that we hope for each other to become better persons and not just lock each other into who we have been, all those kinds of loving actions do something in the world. And according to Jesus, God's glory is attached to this whole thing, is attached to how we love. Glory is God's tangible presence. Glory includes miracles. It includes that, those moments when we have that palpable sense of peace that he brings. Glory is, it includes healing to our bodies and to our minds and to our spirits. All that's what glory is about. It's, it's God's goodness expressed and tasted and seen. Jesus also attaches this idea of glory and love uh, together in his prayer to the Father in John 17. Listen to it. He says that all of them, he's referring to the church, he's referring to us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. In, 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 in theology, we talk about the notion of Trinity and that, and that the Trinity has this very unique kind of vibe going on within the Trinity. Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Son, Spirit to Father. And, and, and it's called the perichoresis. It means it means the kind of choreography. It means the dance. The perichoresis, it's the dance. That somehow Father, Son, and Spirit so relate to each other, there's a kind of movement that's in it. And, and, and the idea, in fact, one of, the, one of the church fathers said that when you try to look at the Trinity, like watching a dancing couple, sometimes you see his face, sometimes you see her face, and you just almost change as you're watching them. That sometimes we see Father, sometimes we see Son, sometimes we see Spirit. But it's the dancing God. And that somehow what Jesus is saying, Father... Just as you and I dance and we flow together, let them come into the dance. Let them be a part of this union that we are. And the union is about love. God is love. And then he goes on to say, the people will know that you, they'll believe that you sent me if they can get into this dance. I have given them the glory that you gave me. See, glory is connected with it. 
and, and that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, may, be, may they be brought to complete unity to the let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here's a question. What if the hardest thing about being a Christian is not to believe? What if the hardest thing is to love? What if the hardest thing to embrace as a Christian is not holiness, saying no to sin? What if the hardest thing is actually loving other people? What if, what if, what if it's the hardest thing isn't to embrace and protect right doctrine, but to love? That, that it's more important to connect with each other and to connect with God than it is to be correct in everything that we say and do. I don't know that if you've noticed this or not, but it takes some real strength to uh, value people who are not like you. You have to fight through things to connect with people who seem odd to you. Uh, the old aphorism holds true. The more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. <laughs> it's true. It's hard. It's so easy to take offense it's so easy to want to pull away from people. Listen to Paul on this point. This is in Philippians 2. If you guys have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's saying, you know that energy that you get, that spiritual power, like spiritual power pills that you get when you just have this encouragement from being united with Christ? He says, if there's any comfort, again, there's that power, any comfort from his love, if you've had any fellowship with the Spirit and experienced tenderness, you've experienced that compassion in God and that relationship you've had with him, take all of that spiritual stuff, all that spiritual dynamism, all that spiritual energy, and he says, make my joy complete by directing it to being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit and in purpose. Don't think, do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Humility comes from the word hupotasso. It means to rank yourself under for the purpose of lifting. So if I hupotasso this, this uh, pulpit thing, I, I get under it, I rank under it, and I lift it. He said, that's what we're to do with people. We're to walk into the job and we're to submit ourselves and lift people. Walk into a friendship and submit ourselves and lift people. Walk into a marriage and submit ourselves and lift people. Even when we train children, it isn't just to be the lawyers. We're to somehow find ways to submit ourselves and give ourselves and lift them out of the kind of actions that we think need to be gone. He says... Your attitude, he goes on, he says, each of you should not look only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same that was in Jesus. Watch. Who being in the very nature of God, equal with God, he did not regard or consider that equality as something to be held onto or grasped, but instead he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, became in the likeness of humankind, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Theologically, this is called kenosis. This is God Almighty somehow finding a way to leave all that and to become a human being, not the top dog human being, but actually go all the way down and to die the worst kind of death, death on a cross, which is like electric chair kind of thing. And as he does that, he doesn't just take on our humanity. The scripture tells us he actually takes on our sin. He actually embraces and ingests everything that makes us human, even the stuff that makes us bad humans. 
And somehow that kind of impulse, Paul's saying, let that be in you because as Christ does it, we're his body of the world. Let's do that to the world. Now, obviously, this isn't natural, right? What's natural is a story that I'm going to read to you just in a moment from Acts chapter 11 where people are critical because the new Christians who were Jews, all of them were Jews, began to embrace people that were considered foreign the Gentiles. They were considered unclean, the Gentiles, and it was creating quite a stir. But, but the point is, is that it's, it's natural for us to kind of do this us-them thing. And, and, and it's natural for us to look at people as either being right or wrong, good or evil, blessed or cursed, and we want to side with the ones that are blessed, side with the ones that are good, side with the ones who in some way, you know, are, are we're thinking they're rot, and we want to sort of push back from the ones that aren't. I have a, a friend named Bruce Porter who loves the Jewish people and spends a lot of time in Israel, and he was talking to me about back in the 70s when he first started going there. He went there for several years. He learned Hebrew, and he spoke frequently in Hebrew with people in the streets, and and uh, he was talking about, he was on this bus, and there was a Hasidic Jew there. They're the guys that wear all the, the, the hats, and they have the long ringlets in their size, you know, kind of thing. Very, very, uh, very, very uh, orthodox Jew. And uh, he was talking to him, and the guy thought that, that uh, because he, uh, Bruce was speaking Hebrew to him, and he kind of looks Jewish, Bruce does. So he's talking to him, the Hasidic Jew's engaging, and he's shaking his hand. And, and after he was talking to Bruce for a while, he realized Bruce wasn't a Jew. And so here's what he did. He continues the conversation, but he started doing this. <laughs> he had his wiping off his hand. Because you don't want to touch Gentiles. This, was, this is still present today. It was deeply present in the ancient world. And so with that backdrop, listen to the story. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, this is Acts 11, heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jews, criticized him. See, when you start associating with people that others think you shouldn't, you're going to be criticized. And they said to him, you went into the house of those uncircumcised men and ate with them. You know, what you doing with those kind of people, what they're saying to Peter? Don't you have any discernment? And Peter explained, began to explain everything to them precisely as it had happened, that he was in the city of Joppa praying and he saw this vision and something like this large sheet was let down from heaven in four corners and it came down, he says, where I was. And he said, I looked and I saw these four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and reptiles, birds of the air. And then this voice told me, get up, Peter, kill it. And Peter goes, no way, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. See, this notion of what they ate was a boundary marker for who they were as a people and who they were in their faith. They were being asked, he was being asked to do something that would have violated what he understood his faith even meant. And the voice spoke from heaven a second time, do not call anything impure. That God doesn't call impure. That God has made clean. And this happened three times, it says. See, somehow... We have to understand that, that there's this impulse in us to pull away from people, but yet love has this way of crossing boundaries that you're going to feel uncomfortable crossing. Not that you embrace everything, but that somehow you embrace the people involved with anything. 
that people matter more than what people do. <laughs> this is not generally true of me. I have to be honest with you. I still practice trying to not see people at face value and react to them. I try to cultivate in my heart that person is someone who is as valued in the eyes of God as Jesus because Jesus came for them. I try to look at people and think they are in the likeness and the image of God. Maybe a little marred, but they are in the likeness and image of God. And to learn and cultivate that. But as, it's easy not to do that. And one of the, one of the moments of grace that, that I had early in the 80s that helped me so much, and I was so glad that, that God graced me to this. So this isn't a natural thing. This is very holy to me. Is I was in, the, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I was, pre- I was not preaching. I was at an event. I was at a church there. It's a huge church. I had preached there a number of times. But I was just visiting that particular morning. And this guy came up to me. And if you've heard this story before, I apologize, but I only have a few stories because I've only had one life to live. I can make stuff up, but I don't. It'd be more interesting probably, but I don't. <laughs> so welcome to my boring life. But anyway, so, so I, I'm standing there. This guy comes up to me. He looked a little pale. He looked a little sickly. And he came up to me and said, he said, Ed Gunger. I said, yeah. He said, he said I, I just have been so helped by you being here when you've preached here. I'm so delighted that I ran into you. You know, he was just talking real kindly to me. And he said, would you mind praying for me? Well, great. So I stepped forward a little bit and I said, sure. And I reached out and, you know, tore apart his hand to pray for him. And then he said, I have AIDS. Now, for many of you that didn't live through those 80s as adults, you don't get what that meant. Because when the AIDS epidemic started and we started hearing about it, we knew a couple of things. One is we knew it was primarily in the gay community. It hadn't crossed over to the heterosexual community. It was in the gay community. We also, too, knew that we didn't know how it was transmitted. We thought you could get it by breathing on you. We didn't know if you could get it by touching. We didn't know if we got sweat or tears or anything like that. Nobody knew how you got it. And the, it were dire predictions on the news. I mean, they were talking about, man, you, you know, this is going to be an epidemic. This could destroy the human world. You know, this could destroy humanity, humanity. And so that's the milieu in which this event is happening. And so when he said, I have AIDS, would you pray for me? My fr- what do you think my first reaction was inside? Is that true? <laughs> but instead, I felt this grace in me to take a step toward him. And I got closer. And instead of holding onto his hand, I put my hand up on his neck. And I touched his neck. And I kind of pulled his head closer to me. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know, you've seen those cartoons where there's the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. Well, the, the angel in me said, this is, this is good. I felt the rising of God's spirit. The, the other devil part of me was going, well, you're going to die now. <laughs> It's over. You got your hand around him. Now you pulled him in. You got some breathing going on here. You're going to die. I'm not kidding you. You're going to die. And I remember my reaction from my heart was, what a way to die. Loving someone, leaning into them. If I die this way, let me die. See, that was in my heart. So then I started to pray for him. And I I just felt this impulse. So I pulled him and and I put his cheek right on my cheek. And I'm praying for him. We're touching cheeks. And then this other, the devil said to me again, this devil figure, I'm sure it was myself, but this, whatever this figure was said to me, well, now he thinks you're gay. (laughs) 
And inside I thought, I don't care. And as I'm praying for him, he began to weep. And his tears were getting on me. But my heart was exploding with joy. And there was something in that moment that I felt like it caught the idea of loving the world and not caring about judgment, not caring about assessment, not caring about criticism, not caring about danger. And something in that moment said to me, this is what the church is to be. Do you remember this story? This is Jesus in Matthew 8. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. But just so you know, the lepers, as they walked through Israel, everybody stayed away from them. And they would actually, when they're walking through the streets, would cry, unclean, unclean. So people would hear them and back away from them because nobody wanted to get within proximity of the leper. And so here's this leper just kneels before Jesus. If, if you're willing, you can make me clean and watch. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Now you know if you've read Jesus, other places he just spoke. But here he touches the leper. What is it about love that makes you risk your life? Do you engender that? Do you cultivate that? What if this is what Christianity is? Touching the lepers. Something in fallen humankind doesn't want to be near, much less touch someone they perceive to be different or perceive to be a threat. René Girard, he's a brilliant historian, social science philosopher. He claims that all cultures begin to form as soon as they find an enemy, a scapegoat, someone to hate or an other. So much of my experience early in my Christianity was about separating from people. I'm not like them. I don't do that. I don't smoke or chew or hang around with folks that not realizing that that kind of position was more anti-Christ. Christians naturally do this kind of pushing away because we're human, we're social beings. But our Lord says, stop it. We are to love. And listen to his description. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Kindness is being solicitous, it means that you're disposed to showing favor to people. That's your orientation. It, 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 is, it, does not, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it doesn't seek self, like Philippians says. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of bad stuff being done to it. Love does not delight in the evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails a person, a friend, a spouse. And now these three remain, he says in verse 13, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, this stuff is supernatural. Paul and his buds had it in, 
in the play and the warp and woof of their everyday lives when he says in 1 Corinthians 4, we are cursed. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Wow. When they slap us, we turn another cheek. We don't react out of our pain. We react out of the part that's still whole, that isn't stinging. So when we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we don't threaten, we endure it. When we are slandered, we don't have to try to make sure they understand who we are. We just simply answer kindly. Most of us wouldn't describe the American church like this. Maybe what? that's why the church seems to be disappearing in the American culture. Yet it is our calling. If you and I will care about the world meeting Christ, if we really do care, we have to take the risk of loving the world. But the truth is most of us find it easier to judge than to love. I've often told God when I felt busted about judging someone, you know, love them. I thought, Lord, you love them. I'll judge them. It just comes so much more naturally for me. I have this natural, ah, yeah, I got you pegged. Yeah, that happened to you because you're an evil person. Who offends you most? Brash people. Atheists. Those in the LGTB community. People going through divorce. People of other faiths. Do you react when you go through an airport and you see someone with the turban on their head? A Sikh? Muslim? Someone who's a Hindu? Buddhist? Who offends you most? Republicans? <laughs> Democrats? Independents? A transgendered person in your public bathroom? Who offends you most? How much you love the ones who bother you most? Hear me. How much you love the people who bother you the most is the measure of how much you love God. Well, how can that be? I love people. This is what Jesus said. If you love people who love you, yippee-i-yo-ki-yay. <laughs> if you're kind to people who are kind to you, what think of you? But when you love someone you perceive as a threat, when you love someone who's doing everything you would never do, when you love someone that after you touch them, you want to wipe off your hands, but instead you embrace them. When you love someone like that, you're loving. That's the best example of how you're loving God. John says it this way. We, though, are going to love. Love and be loved. First, we were loved, and now we love. He loved us first. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, that person's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he say that he loves the God who he cannot see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. 
You may say you love God, but do you? Do you? Look around your life. That neighbor that's like crazy. Look on the job, that person who takes credit for your stuff. That boss has seemed so unfriendly and so unfair. Do you love her? You may feel you love like God does, but God loves everyone, irrespective of their stupid. <laughs> For God so loved the world. <laughs> right? No one in God's mind is beyond his love or his hope. He sees every person as his dream come true. The text tells us that God chose him. Paul was talking to pagans. God said, or Paul says, through, or says to the pagans, God chose the exact time in history you'd be born and the exact place in which you live. And in him you live and you move and you have your being. That's for people that have no sense of God or the God that we understand through Revelation. God still treasures them. God still loves them. God loves them so much that he became us and reached into the depths of who they were and then looks at us as his body and says, will you please follow my steps? Will you dare to love? Will you dare to lay down your life? It doesn't mean, you know, whether, I mean, God does this whether people act right or don't act right, but it doesn't mean that God, that people won't have to face God for what they do. They do, they will. But, but judgment is appointed for an, is, is, is for an appointed time. And that's not something we control, right? We just have to surrender that. It isn't in our hands. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. It's not your deal. You're just supposed to love people recklessly, incautiously love people. Finally, when we love like this, we open the way for new, a new world. Like the text that was written or read in the first uh, uh, song where, where uh, the revelation, uh, the man who writes the revelation says, then I saw heaven and the new earth, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and there was no longer any sea. This text isn't against water. <laughs> what sea is, it's, it's a symbol in the Old Testament of, of incomprehensible evil. The sea was a place of trouble for most people and, and, and it was scary to them in the ancient world. That's why sailors were so revealed. They couldn't believe they went over the sea because it was so scary. But what he's saying here is that incomprehensible evil is quashed in the new world. That somehow there's new things that come. And, and we know that that's fully happening at the end of the age. But it's happening a little bit now because if any person is in Christ, that person is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. See, we're in the tension between he's here, but not fully here. Things are new, but not fully new. But every time we love, every time we give, every time we pull the person's face against our cheek instead of reacting to them, every time new comes, the sea loses its power. If you and I want to quash evil in our city, if we want to bring the kingdom to bear in the places we work, 
We must dare to love, which means we have to risk being criticized, which means we have to risk being misunderstood, which means we have to risk being seen as a supporter of sinful people. Remember that Jesus, because of his kindness to sinners, got the religious crowd all freaked out at him. In Matthew 11, this is what they said about Jesus. This is our Lord and our Savior. They said this about Jesus, and as his body, if you live rightly, they might say it about you. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which was not what you wanted to be. They said this about Jesus. Are you willing to be misunderstood, judged, and criticized, then love. If you're not willing to be, then don't love. Just be judgy, and just be picky rooney, and just be better than thou wish, and be superior to others, and be right. Just go ahead and do that. Be like most American church people are. But if you want to take the new command to love, then get ready to see the glory of God. His tangible, healing, redemptive, transforming presence. And watch for the new to come. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.